You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Uh, so today we were joined by Corinne um, Paskey, who is the founder of Speckle. And Corinne, I think Patrick, you know, really brought some great insight into the the world of kind of um, bridge financing and kind of how, you know, really financial literacy and money management and kind of understanding the notion that, you know, any good banker knows, which is arbitrage, which is that if I can charge you a higher interest rate than I buy the money, that's free money. And I think Corinne does a great job of kind of talking about one, the kind of the difference in values between generations, but then also um, the, the lack of historic access that people without the means have had to good financial management and credit. Mm. And you touched on some good points and Corinne backed that up with her data points around generational relationship with money and what Corinne really is advocating for, I think, among Speckle is to be able to educate and build up that financial literacy and be able to feed some of the information that they get from their users back into the policy to try and actually affect real change in the way that Australians, especially young Australians, we really focused on millennials. I think that's because Speckle really focused on millennials and um, I can say our relationship with finance and to try and move that away from emotional to a bit more of a rational or pragmatic sense, I think, is where we're heading. Yeah, and she makes a great point about how, you know, that financial literacy can be quite high, but emotional financial literacy, as she explains, is a very, very different thing. So how healthy is your relationship to money is something that I think Corinne does a great job of pointing out that that's the key thing that you actually have to look at. Mm, for sure she develops an interesting product right now in the middle of a pandemic when it is a hot topic and it's well worth diving in and spending the time to listen to Corinne and so I hope you enjoy Um, so we're joined today by um, Corinne Prosky, who's the founder of Speckle. So Corinne, thanks so much for joining us today. And um, can you let us know uh, where we find you and what you've been up to on this fine, uh, beautiful Wednesday? Hello. Um, I, I'm in Melbourne today and um, I'm actually in my home and I'm living in my uh, my office where I think I've been living for the last eight, eight months as we've been working through COVID. And I think you can, uh, a small space, I've discovered you can uh, rethink the world in, in quite a different way. <laughs> nice I one. also think we've, we've been able to do uh, some exponential change in the last eight months. We've adopted different technologies, different ways to work, uh, to live. And I think there's some really important lessons in that moving forward. Uh, and, and could we adopt that for other, I think, more important things like climate change? Fantastic. And I mean, what's been your favorite, uh, what's been your favorite kind of um, um, hack and kind of the working, working from home scenario? Uh, Look, I've I've really enjoyed it. I think one of the risks is that where work and home blend together, but I actually quite like being able to do my washing and think about, you know, how I think finance should change. Uh, also keep an eye out on the US election, which is taking place at the moment, and be able to do that when um, when I can. And But also, I think that the technology these days allows us to connect through um, digitally much more than we, you know, it was much better than what it used to be. So we use Teams and Zoom quite a lot. So 
I think as a business, we're actually tighter than even when we were in the office. We do, I do miss some of the interaction, but I think there's a real opportunity in how you work and how you get the best out of people whilst also acknowledging that you know they have families and you know I'm able to drop my son off at school every morning and that that for me is a really important part of blending the work and home together. Mm, it sounds like you've got a good approach to the home work-life balance there and, <laughs> and take full advantage of blending your environments I suppose to raise new perspectives in your line of work. I think that's a refreshing approach. Now, if we could just take it back and, and talk about Speckle. What is Speckle? Why Speckle? So Speckle, Speckle's um, been known as my, my second child. Um, and it's really, I was nearly nine years ago, I went into a payday lender with a friend and kind of sat helping them and really providing moral support around the transaction of trying to repossess their watch uh, for $150. And I think what I realised in that payday lending experience was that there was just such inequity um, and a really broader rage, an inside rage around with this, there's got to be a better way. We can't have those who are most vulnerable paying the most and to be so disempowered in those transactions. So that kind of was the the nut and it really came out of, I think, um, frustration and anger around that uh, unfairness. And through then I've been uh, working on how do you get this idea up? And the idea was how do you build an ethical payday lender? And um, so it's been through, it's been through many lives um, initially, it was going to be built within the National Australia Bank. Um, then we ended up taking it out and building it within a not-for-profit called Good Shepherd Microfinance, and now it's a standalone entity called Speckle Financial Health. So it's been through various iterations, but it is we've leveraged technology, and um, we're using the the latest fintech. And from that, where it's really about how do you put the customer in the centre of it. So the pricing is much less. When people run into hardship, we're much nicer. <laughs> and also we're collecting a lot of data. and we're, We've been providing that to some of the government regulators and other advocacy groups around what are people doing? And, and you know, this is a product that's largely taken up by millennials. Mm -hmm. It's small cash loans of under $2,000. Uh, so we're learning a lot about how people use their money, manage it, and their relationship with it. And that, I think, having that data then allows, you know, policy input, which is, um, yeah, that's that's got proof, proof points. Is that one of the original thoughts behind this this product or this initiative that you've created to get a better insight into what people need at the same time servicing something um, that is really needed a necessity yeah it was always it was really important for us to be able to help um, demystify the, that market segment and to understand what about it was so predatory because there's very little data available publicly around what the companies who operate in this space do and how they do it. So it was really important for us to be able to open that up and to share that. Um, and we've been able to do that with both, you know, the regulators as well as social policy areas in government. 
And from you know, the the idea of kind of the ethical lender in in that space, I mean, you're often from a from a payday loan perspective, as I understand that, it's about really trying to bridge to the next piece of income that you actually have coming in. And what historically has happened is that you never, once you enter into that space, you never get out because of the interest interest rate. So this idea of kind of a you know an interest rate that rolls ahead of you that you can never actually actually catch up with. How have you contrasted that with kind of a as a not for profit framework and actually worked to actually lower the the rate of interest? I mean, how have you actually gone about doing that in terms of the actual practicalities of putting in place the financing and the business model that can operate on arguably lower margins? So it's look, it's something we're constantly working on and that cost piece, but that was one of the ideas behind the technology. If you can automate it and scale it then you can actually bring the cost down per per loan. So that was kind of really important for us in how we chose our technology. Um, as I said, we're kind of reiterating, and as the technology changes, it also becomes more affordable. Uh, when we started to build the techs five, six years ago, uh, some of it, you know, there was only one or two suppliers. Now there's a, a lot more within the market, so that allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece was looking at um, the auto approvals and how do you how do you automate some of those ethics if you want and we've got some hard and fast rules but we also have someone overseeing it um, and during the pandemic we were fortunate enough that our call, call center is actually in Australia it's not a very big call center where it's it's you know people who um, we've all been working from home on it and many of the other businesses had offshore uh, call centres and they actually were shut down in, in periods. So it was interesting to demonstrate yeah. that yeah. doing it local worked. Yeah, interesting. And so the the kind of, I mean, are you seeing, so this kind of this, this space between kind of, you know, um, the classic kind of credit has played. I mean, how, how have you seen that change during during COVID? Have you seen an, a huge uptake in, in demand? Have you seen people needing to do things things differently? What are the shifts that you've seen over yeah, the last six are, months? Well, I think it's it's been, um, first of all, everybody just stopped using credit. That was the first piece that was clear. You know, from March, as soon as it got announced that we were going into lockdown in Australia, it people just just stopped. They paused, um, and since then, it's slowly come back. Um, I don't expect we will see the full kind of credit uptake until the JobKeeper program is completed at the end of March. Um, there are many people who are still on wages at the moment that, you know, it'll. I think the true extent of the economic impact will be seen next year. So they, so it did stop. Uh, the lending kind of slid down for a little while. It's picked up again. Um, but what's been interesting, and and, um, and I can speak for ourselves, I don't know about some of the competition, we actually ha- continue to get all the payments coming through. And I was surprised, given our cohort um, was very impacted by COVID. They were working mm. in hospitality, retail, um, the arts and leisure. They were kind of our, and construction, they were kind of our heartland and customers. They continued to pay it off. And um, we've had very few actually default on the loans during that period, which um, actually surprised me. Uh, yeah. 
I spe- oh, excuse my ignorance, but where does a not-for-profit get its line of credit? Like, how do you provide that loan? Like, where are you dipping so into? So we've been able to. We've got a. We've had a relation, long-standing relationship with the National Australia Bank. So our line of credit has actually come from NAB. Okay. That's, yep. and, and then who are your, you're saying millennials are primarily who you think yes, you're servicing they're, they're and they're the ones who are coming through? Yeah. And they are, so it is a cash flow product, but we, we're also finding that millennials don't want to use the traditional credit card or traditional bank credit. Um, and they're more interested in getting quicker access to money. So the, the time to, to money is actually really important for this segment. And they want a good... Um, experience, a digital experience. So they want to be able to do it on their phone. It's got to be quick um, and it's got to be easy. Mm. And, and I think um, that's one of the reasons that the more traditional products are not getting uptake, the uptake by that segment. No, they're not. Uh, we've and this, also it... seen them move to the buy now, pay later, which has kind of been the, the latest theme. Mm, and that's another Australian one that's leading the charge there on the international stage. Hey, Afterpay. But yeah. where are you hoping? Where are you hoping to grow? Where do you see Speckle sitting? There's a lot of fintech companies budding out or budding up, and they seem to be all looking towards millennials as the as the big customer base. But where do you want to be sitting? Like, what do you want to ideally be servicing as a not for profit? Does it want to be a lot of people, a small concentration? Look, we look. My sense is as many people as we can, because we're more affordable when we look after people when things get tough. Um, I think the more I can kind of bring into that segment, the better. Um, I, that's you're spot on in terms of the millennial is being targeted by everyone, and there's only so much in the pocket. And we can now see in the COVID recession that they are the most impacted out of the entire market. So um, my sense is we're here to help get them back on track, get some confidence around money. We know money is stressing them at the moment. We also know that uh, the mental health isn't great. So it's around how do you, uh, we, we call it, how do you build their financial health um, so that they can get the confidence to then get back into the market. Um, and, you know, in best case scenario, customers won't come back to us. Mm. Uh, we know the reality is that they tend to have these cash flow up and downs for a lot longer, so we tend to see them a lot more. But if we could migrate them into uh, a more mainstream product that's potentially even um, more affordable, all the better. Mm. That sounds great. It sounds like a good promise. Um, I was wanting to know the financial health. I'm a millennial. Um, I've definitely stressed about finance. So <laughs> that may be true. Over, over the, I'll make it personal here because I think that speaks maybe to some listeners who will tune in. But what is something that you would tell someone in, in finance or in, a millennial in general in, at a, a time like now? What's something that you guys provide? Look, what we've built a, a little budget tool and it's one of these automated budget tools. And I think one of the key things is just understand what's coming in and what's going out. Um, money doesn't have to be stressful, but we also develop most of our relationships with money at a young age, and it's often emotional. So we know that money is about how, we, how it makes us feel, and it doesn't have to run our world, but 
just make sure you've got enough coming in to cover what's going out. Yeah. Thank you. I'll take that and put it in the back pocket. Yeah, and as I've been but trying to do, <laughs> and use uh, cool automated tools. Like there's a whole lot of uh, tools that can help prompt you and go, hey, you know, a couple more coffees than last week, and and many of us during this period have been able to save a bit because the shops have been shut. Um, so I think there's some really important lessons coming out of COVID. Is how many of us went to online shopping? Um, but also, did we actually reduce some of that consumption? And can that reduction actually be maintained, you know, beyond a lockdown? Yeah, for, for sure, for sure. And it's, um, you know, like I'm always, I'm always struck by the generational relationship to money. So, you know, I mean, my, my gram was classic for, you know, always scolding me about making sure that I saved half and spend half. But she was coming out of a, you know, kind of World War II environment where that really, really right. mattered. And so for her, it was all about ensuring that they had enough genuinely for that, for that rainy day. Whereas my parents was more understanding that, you know, they were trying to kind of finance things through credit and kind of trying to get ahead through doing those things. So it's a bit more speculative. So I'm, I'm really kind of interested in the generational shifts that actually have occur around money. And in particular, because you're able to gather some of, the, some of the data around kind of how people actually use money and kind of where that shift in spending is, is going at a, at a kind of a, at a millennial level. I mean, it feels when you, when you look at it, the shift in spending is also very, very different. Is that, is that a fair assumption right. on my end? Yeah, yeah, it is. And one of the things which we saw prior to COVID and it's now been super exacerbated was the rise of services such as Uber Eats, all of the delivery foods. That's skyrocketed, particularly with, with younger people. And we can see that that's eating into their income significantly. Um, I think it's still up 200% on pre-COVID at this stage. So I think it's around understanding where does that fit into your priorities and is that the best way of spending your money? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And then staying on the data trend in terms of that the information that you're collecting and feeding back into policy, how does that how does that work and how does that develop over time? I suppose you're collecting a data set and then how are you preparing it and f- feeding it back? Do you already have those avenues of communication in policy makers' heads? email boxes we have started this yeah so we have got quite a few who come to us saying what do you think Uh, what are you seeing at the moment and that's where we'll we always de-identify the data and we just provide some trends around you know we we had particularly when the policy around superannuation withdrawal came through we were able to provide some real data on what that looked like who was doing it and what they were doing with it um, at a very early stage so I think, you know, there's quite a few now who know and say, you know, what's happening here or, or can you pull us some data at the moment on, on what people are spending or is this, you know, reflective of the market or just some anomalies? You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. 
And if you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. And kind of at a at a macro level, I mean, for example, with the with the RBA, um, you know, pursuing almost a kind of a zero interest policy, really aligned with the rest rest of the world. I mean, um, what's what's your own? It doesn't necessarily have to be a speckle view, but kind of someone who's actually in in um, financial services. I mean, where do you think this is all actually heading at at the moment? Because it feels like money's never been cheaper, but yet people don't necessarily want to spend it. It's, it's uh, look, I was very surprised yesterday that the rates were cut. Uh, my, my, um, and this is not my area of expertise, it's just my no, area no, of this is just this is just three people chatting. <laughs> is, I'm just interested in your take. Is, yeah. is that um, that's just a sheer indication that the underlying economy is not well. Yeah. So we haven't really, and I think this is part of the JobKeeper policy, we really haven't seen what's going on below beneath the surface and with Victoria only coming out of lockdown in the next week or so properly we won't actually understand what that means so I think they know they've seen some data that that indicates where we're at and hence they've dropped the cost Um, I never thought I would live in an environment uh, with this kind of interest rate (laughs) and uh, it's definitely for those who can afford it it's the right time to borrow but it, and then, and for uh, the older generation who tend to have savings and investments, it's not great. <laughs> but um, it's probably I think if if you can't afford it and you haven't got the money put away, I'd be careful because it's it's clearly an indication that the economy is not well. Mm-hmm. And this kind of this uh, you were mentioning before about the kind of the superannuation withdrawal, and particularly through through younger people. I mean, it's from everything that I've seen on that, it's it's disproportionately has been younger people in particular yep. industries such as hospitality who um, have taken their their money out. And I mean, can you speak to our kind of um, listeners a little bit about actually what that means between kind of current survival of self and future future self, perhaps regretting that decision? And, and for those who've had to take it out because they are experiencing, you know, quite dire hardship, it's the best, you know, step forward. But what concerns me is I think we've now got $42 billion that has been taken out and um, people have taken it out because they've sensed that this is their, their, in, their own money and it's their nest egg. Mm. What we've now seen is for people... Um, for someone of the age of 25, taking out the $20,000 basically means that they will reduce their super balance between eighty and 100000 uh, in the future. And that's the whole power of the compounding interest. So taking that money out in the early years has very significant impacts later on when they're looking at retirement. For older people, that impact is reduced because there's less uh, time for it to compound. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, that's been one of my main concerns. It feels like we're basically putting the responsibility on young people who have lost their jobs to then fund their way out of it at the cost of their future retirement. 
Yeah, and and that notion of that you're speaking about before that this um, the COVID, however, I don't even know what to refer to this as, but the the kind of the COVID um, pandemic has disproportionately affected um, younger younger people in terms of kind of their particularly not not at a health level but at an income level, and the yeah. role of financial literacy in Corinne in that is is what I mean what what would you say is the the typical kind of um, young Australians um, financial literacy. And what would you what would you change if you could? Look, I think financial literacy for me is is only part of the equation, and that's just understanding the products and services you're accessing. I think more fundamentally, we have to have a better conversation around that relationship with money. And do you buy stuff to make yourself feel better? Mm. Um, and I think understanding, you know, does is money a positive feeling or is it a negative feeling? Do you enjoy saving? All of those pieces need to be explored because we can all know what we need to do with our money and we can still do the wrong thing because those emotional pieces override. So I think there's there's two things we need to look at. For a lot of the people, I think, who have been impacted in terms of their employment, I was looking at the data uh, today, they're just sitting in all of those, you know, 50% of the the retail, uh, accommodation and recreation industries, 50% of their staff are under 25. So they've been hit. So you can see just through the sectors how young people have been hit and there's nothing they could do to change that. It's just, um, that's just the way it's played out. Um, so I think basically we've seen a lot of people move home, we've seen people consolidate debts, um, you know, we've seen some really sensible movements um, because it will stabilise and then as we open up and we kind of understand what the new normal is, I think people will be able to find new opportunities. But, yeah, I, I think it's terrible that it's it's actually been so specific to that segment. And within that segment, we can also identify that young women are, are, are hit much harder than the young men. And why is that? Why is it young women? Just financially in terms of the industries. Right, right. Yeah, and the industries that aren't being propped up by government support That's at right. the moment. Yeah. The um, fact that the government pulled out on the childcare support, that hit that industry significantly. And I think that industry is close to 98% women. Mm. Yeah, it's been an interesting tack taken by the government in terms of who's getting sorted out. I was wondering if you could chat a little bit about, a bit more on how financial and social is becoming blended. I think Speckle speaks very much to that, but in terms of how customers shop, they must align their values with how they shop. I think that's something millennials are definitely um, pursuing and it's definitely attacked a lot of businesses are pursuing to get millennials at the same time. But I'm wondering how do you see that climate playing out around social policy and the way that government regulates business? Do you feel like companies or businesses have to be ahead of the game because regulators are sort of falling behind and they're a little bit more flexible? Look, I think... Look, I think, yeah, I think there's, it's definitely coming of age. Um, there's been a lot of conversation around, you know, the social consumer for a long time. But I think we're starting to see that. And I think businesses also are seeing it in terms of um, customer retention and employee retention as well. People want to work for their place, that, you know, doing the right thing. So I think 
it's it's taken a long time. I've been working in this type of space for for a very long time, <laughs> and we talked about it for many years. And now I can actually see that the dollars and the consumer behaviour is starting to follow through. Because mm. you can see that today, Officeworks just announced a what was it twenty twenty five commitment to be hundred percent renewable, which is a massive call for a big organisation. Yeah. But there, it's also a call for an organisation to stay relevant. Is was my read on it at the same time. There's also, um, and for the climate piece, I think the climate piece is. It's a risk management for many businesses. Mm, yeah. If we don't start actively managing that risk within how we do things and how we price things, it will it will catch up. We all know it's happening. There was a report put out earlier in the week by Deloitte saying that the, you know the the cost of climate change is going to be worse than the pandemic. Uh, it's if people want to be in business in the long term, they've got to look at it. Yeah, no, it's it's so true. It's the the cost. I was um yeah, I was listening to this thing from uh, from McKinsey a few days ago talking about exactly that. In that you know that the actual climate change is going to end up costing a business. I think it's you know for every every four profitable years, it's going to cost them one of those profitable years just through um you know some unforeseen event in their supply chain. And this notion about kind of how how climate you know, because we live on one planet is actually embedded into everything. It does feel like it's a risk mitigation thing, but it's also, I think there's a gen, unless I'm, I'm Karina, I'm getting just interested in your thoughts on this. It feels like there's a generational change in business as well. That's being driven by one in terms of kind of um, investors as well, actually starting to go, we have to do something about this. Totally. And I think um, in Australia, the power has really been the super funds. Mm. And for me, a landmark decision was the uh, the super funds who voted against Rio Tinto and their management on on the um, Aboriginal uh, assets that, that they blew up. So I think, you know, you can see f that was one of the first times I've actually seen that they've voted to actually change organizational practices now again it makes commercial sense but also it was a really important i think you know historical move against a, a company which we haven't seen in the past yeah and on on an agm floor as well which totally, is totally. <laughs> you know public was, the whole nine yeah, yards i, I think yeah. it was a real watershed mm. moment for mm. that, that kind of investment now um Social investment has been going on for years as well, but it tended to be quite a niche area of the market with the super funds and broader investment houses coming in, you know, and even BlackRock having a position around climate. This is where you start to, to change the entire market, and that's really exciting. Mm. Can you just speak to us a little bit a little bit about the power that super has in terms of if it was seen as a as an entity itself, which it is, it's it's not an individual. Gina Reinhardt looks like a small ant in comparison to some of these <laughs> super funds. So the the power that they wield, can you just ex explain to that in terms of a market sense? So the super funds, well, it's a, it's Australia's biggest asset. So as individuals and now as an asset pool, uh, and we're quite unique in that no other country in the world has compulsory super. So this asset has kind of built over quite built up quite quickly. Uh, and so until now, the, the super funds would vote but often support management, but now they're actually taking quite uh, specific positions on climate and other issues. 
so the ESG, the, the social, the ethical and the governance issues. And they're putting a line in the sand on some of this. And this is where we will see, because they are considerable shareholders in in large Australian organisations and therefore they can influence the market if they are not comfortable with what we're doing. Fantastic. And Corinne, so last last question from, from me is, I mean, Speckle kind of, you know, three years down the road from, from here, is it, you know, do you think you're going to have to iterate again? So you've mentioned to us um, during the conversation that you've moved from kind of being in a NAB space into kind of then an, into almost a microfinance space to then being spun out of that into kind of being a standalone kind of not-for-profit and entity. I mean, what's what's next? What do you think is actually upcoming? What are the biggest challenges you, you feel you need to face Look- into? I think one of our challenges will be understanding and it's trying to predict what's going to happen in the market in the next 18 to two years, 18 months to two years, just because we really don't know where the economy is going. <laughs> it, it's no. very different conditions from anything we've experienced. But you're, the, you're or, of the view that it's kind of, it's it's not a 2020 thing, it's a 2021 thing, right? That's Yeah. 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 So part of it is hanging in there, surviving that and then being able to look at what has changed because we've changed significantly already in you know overnight we stopped using paper money and went to digital only Um, we know that psychologically a paper money transaction has a different impact than just a tap and go Um, so all of these things have happened really quickly and we now need to let the dust settle to see what what does that mean for our market we're also seeing, and I think one of the trends I've enjoyed, is we're shopping local. We're trying to back the local businesses where, you know, it's become a lot more place-based than what it seemed to be. And I think that's that's quite exciting and that provides a whole lot of new opportunity. So we're, we're here to watch. We want to grow. We want to support as many customers and help them get back on track. But... Um, I'm not quite sure what the crystal ball holds as yet. <laughs> it's still feels, inside into it the murky, feels murky ball, doesn't it? It does feel a bit, a um, bit murky. So, but uh, hopefully, you know, it's a, it's, it's classic, isn't it? The uh, kind of notion that you know, there's the our, the government's never printed more hundred dollar bills, but yet there's none in circulation because they're the people are literally sleeping on them. You know, kind of tapping it's and going just, as yeah, they go. So it's it's all of these things, and you know, I think yeah. most of us would never have dreamt to be in this kind of situation, you know, where we don't have offices anymore, um, that we would even be isolated, all of all that a health pandemic could derail the entire globe. Mm. Um, I think we thought we could probably manage our way out of it. So I think there's been, there'll be some really interesting learnings out of this. And I think some real opportunity to how to shift be more sustainable and understand that, you know, perhaps the roots of the pandemic came from not, you know, looking after our planet a bit better. Thank you for listening to BAU Business As Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's baupod.co.